Hey there, it's Dr. Nazanin Mo'oli, and I want to chat with you about a key ingredient for a fabulous date night, feeling sexy. And come on, let's be real. What you wear plays a big part in how you rock that confidence. That's why I'm thrilled to introduce you to Quince. Quince brings you premium European linen dresses, blouses, and shorts starting at just $30, along with washable silk tops, 40-carat gold jewelry, and more. And guess what? All of their goodies are priced 50 to 80% lower than similar brands. By teaming up directly with top factories, Quince skipped the middleman and hands us the saving. Plus, they stick to factories with safe, ethical practices and top-notch fabrics and finishes. How awesome is that? Picking from Quince's website was tough because they have a ton of fabulous choices. I ended up going for their 100% washable silk sleep dress in champagne. And let me tell you, my husband was floored. He's convinced whoever rocks this is in for a blast. I'm going to record some content on that dress so you can see how fabulous is that dress. Elevate your date night style with Quince. Pop over to quince.com slash sexology for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's quince.com slash sexology to get free shipping and 365-day returns. quince.com slash sexology. Welcome to Sexology, a podcast that untangles the science of sex and pleasure. And now, with this week's episode, your host, clinical psychologist, Dr. Nazanin Moali. Hello there, you are listening to Sexology Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Nazanin Moali. As you might remember, last month we did a comprehensive survey of the topics that you guys are interested for us to talk about. And a good number of you guys wanted us to talk about male sexualities, issues related to male sexuality and intimacy. And that's why we dedicated the entire next four episodes to this topic. Today, we're just going to focus on desire and drive and the complexity of male sexuality. I was about to say penis owners, but one of the respondents at the survey said, I beg you, please stop saying vulva owners or penis owners. We know what you're talking about. Anyhow, I'm thrilled to introduce our esteemed guest today, Eric Fitzmedrud. Hailing from the beautiful San Francisco Bay Area, Eric has devoted his life to helping men enrich their sex life through emotional regulation, dismantling notions of sexual entitlement, and mastering the art of sexual consent and negotiation. Not only he is a proud member of ASACT, but Eric's academic contributions are also nothing short of a stellar. With a PhD in clinical psychology and a wealth of experience from training therapists to teaching graduates courses, Eric's insights are grounded in both theory and practice. But before we delve into the juicy discussion from today's episode, let's hear a word from our amazing sponsor. Are you passionate about sexuality and envision a future as a certified professional in the field? 
your golden opportunity awaits at Sexual Health Alliance. Their certification programs ranging from sex therapy to couples counseling are tailored to empower you. Dive into a rich learning experience from top experts, all from the comfort of your home. Don't let this chance slip away. Dive into sexualhealthalliance.com or peek into our show notes for more detail. A big shout out to Shaw. Now, without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Eric Fitzmerden. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Sexology Podcast. I am so excited to welcome Dr. Eric Fitzmedrud. Dr. Fitzmedrud, welcome to our show. Thank you very much for having me. Well, I am very excited about this conversation and your book. I was just sharing with you that how grateful I am that I got that advanced copy and I found the conversation very meaningful. And I, I shared the, the writings and information in my Farsi show because I thought it was such, it had such a unique perspective. Can you tell us what led you to writing this book? Yeah, I think there were two primary strains of development. The immediate catalyst was the Me Too process on social media in 2017 and then in the news stories. And I knew as I was watching that unfold in late 2017 that there's another conversation that's happening in my office with partners who aren't experiencing predatory sexual consent violations but are experiencing emotional pressure, dysregulated emotion, desire differences that they don't know how to handle and that are a different kind of consent conversation. And in early 2018, there was a particular story that catalyzed for me. I was like, ah, there's the connection. I can write about that and connect it to my client's experience. And it became one blog entry, two, four, eight. And I went, oh no, I have a book that I have to write now. And the other kind of thread of development is my own personal process of developing in my marriage, developing in my awareness and integration of my own sexual identities, my bi identity, my polyamorous identity, my kink identity, and observing, you know, I'm not just coming from an ivory tower place of teaching people what they ought to have done all along, but witnessing in I hope a humble way that this has been a struggle for me because I wasn't taught this information, even if I wanted it. And so rather than keep that message, you know, one-on-one or couple by couple in my office, I wanted to put it out in the world and share what I've learned, hopefully. Well, I think it, it gives a really interesting framework. I know in the book, you talk about kind of conversation about consent usually is not as helpful. We tell people like, just talk about ask consent. And you talk right. about if like, you know, someone's going rafting and tell them just like, make sure you're not jumping to the water or falling in the water. But the conversation needs to be more, more detailed guidelines. Yeah. yeah. Because the emotional process of what happens while you're trying to get consent, how do you manage the experience of being told no? How do you manage the experience of being asked for something that you're not comfortable with? And how do you find your no? And all of those skills of emotion management, communication, empathy, attunement, monitoring consent throughout the process, it's a much more multidimensional skill than just walking through a couple of consent consent scripts 
checking off the green light and then moving forward is a lot more internal work and preparation that I think needs to go into preparing for that before you even have a partner that you're having those conversations with. Absolutely. And I, again, I, I found the chapter on the history and consent. All of them were very interesting and informative. And I know you had specifically one chapter about sexual desires and sex and all of that. And I want us to talk more about that. I know in the book you talk about sexual desire, the state of sexual desire isn't a necessity. Can you tell us more about that? Sure. So to start with, we need to recognize, I think, that the desire is an emotion and it motivates us toward pleasure, things that we anticipate will be pleasurable or things that we've experienced as pleasurable in the past. And that desire is something that we could experience about a lot of different things in our life in a lot of different ways. And that outside of sexuality, we know we can desire things and not experience them. We know that we can feel desire for a movie star and we're never going to meet them. We could desire a particular car or a particular house or to have had a different career path. And we know, and we have a certain way of kind of just saying, ah, c'est la vie, like that's not going to happen this lifetime and we're okay with it. But especially I think for men, because there are a lot of other desire, because there are a lot of other needs that we have, like connection, intimacy, touch, vulnerability, but that we may not have channels for expressing and fulfilling those needs. We conflate it all into one bucket of sex and sexuality. We end up feeling like our sexual desire is a need. And, you know, I don't want to get into trying to invalidate. I, I know and I believe and I've worked with a lot of men who experience and really feel that their need, that their desire is a need. And once we begin softening the framework around it and looking at the emotional, relational, and human needs underneath that intensity, we begin to soften that experience that desire is a need. And, and the man begins to realize, oh, I can feel and have often felt desire that I know is not a need and that I can let go of and relax about. Such a beautiful way of putting it. and. I know that people talk about when the, I bet all the couple therapists have heard, like, you know, sex is like water and food and I must have it. And it's so embedded in our culture. And I know in your book, you talk about drive theory might not be necessarily accurate. Help us understand that better. So drive theory comes from Freud and it is the analysis, the analogy that sexual desire, sexual expression, is a hunger, like our desire or need for food, that it must be fulfilled. And if it isn't fulfilled, then we will feel that we will be physiologically out of balance, emotionally, our mental health will be out of balance. And it just isn't true. There are people who live their lives celibate. There are people who live their lives without ever having sexual expression with another person. And that, that process doesn't damage your physiology. It's not a medical need. Nobody ever gets ill. Nobody ever dies from not having sex with another person. And, right, there are other connections that we do need. We do need connection with other people. We do need intimacy 
at a human level. There is some evidence that we need touch in our lives, but it doesn't have to be sexual. And the elements of sexual expression that we do need for a measure of authenticity are things that are in our control and that we don't need another person to fulfill. Beautifully put. And you're right that like we often feel that like even in cases of sexual violation, that kind of like we are taking away the accountability from the person who's engaging in behavior, saying that this is a drive or when you start something in that consent conversation, like thinking about it's just like, it's not reversible, right? right? This is one of those things that happens when drive theory is the assumed ground in our culture. We get this language, men need it, that person's a tease. You're cruel if you lead a man on, but don't fulfill his desire. And all of these things don't hold men accountable to managing their desire themselves place the partners of men in the situation of believing or being told that they are supposed to manage their partners, their male partner's desire. And none of these are things are true. And all of them damage consent for both parties. And that ultimately damages pleasure because then we can't find out where the win-win is, where the enthusiastic yes is. We're engaged in a process of what has to be done. And then it's not even true. Absolutely. And I think kind of like put people, the partner of men in a cautious, guarded place, right? Because I don't want to turn that engine on because then it's non-reversible in a way, right? Right. And so even if the partner has desire, they might hide it. They might not let him know. So it really creates not just a potential for high desire, low desire partnership, but high desire, low desire partnership where the low desire partner ends up hiding and and quenching more and more of their desire, eliminating it, creating desireless, sexless relationships. It's tragic in a way. Nobody wanted that. Absolutely. And it gets in the way of people kind of going to the curious place of getting curious about things, right? Because in order for us to experience curiosity and play, we have to be at a relaxed place. And kind of thinking about desire is something that's just like on and off that can kind of put lots of pressure on people. Right. You get things, situations too, where uh, the partner who has desire might want closeness, hugging, just to be with their partner on the couch. But because they've historically been the high desire partner, because they've initiated the low desire partner suddenly is afraid that any closeness means my partner is initiating, my partner wants sex, and then they withdraw. And now not even the sexual connection, but also the non-sexual intimacy between them can get squashed. And it, it leaves people feeling alone together. I certainly have also seen it a lot in my practice when there is this kind of like desire discrepancy and then mm-hmm. people try to kind of avoid the partner because they don't want to give a quote unquote wrong messages. And when you kind of like take sex off the table, like as sometimes sex therapists do, then yeah. there's just this relaxation that you can have physical touch back in the relationship. Right. And then you get that fun thing where, you know, you've stepped in as the therapist to say, hey, maybe it would be better for your relationship for a while for you to take sex off the table. And the couple comes back in with these sheepish sheepish looks and, you know, stolen glances. And they eventually tell you like, well, we broke your rule. And it's like, oh, it wasn't my rule. It was a suggestion. How did that happen? What happened here? 
And where pressure gets off the table, suddenly things become possible again. Absolutely. So I know that sometimes people were taught that there are physiological reactions that happens when someone is aroused, but they're just not acting on that desire. I know we were just talking about and you said there are different scenarios to that. So tell us more about that. So I always like to make the distinction between arousal and genital tumescence and engorgement for men, erection, because these things are different, right? Arousal at the broad physiological level is very similar for men, women, or people of other genders. People dilation, heart rate increase, respiration increase, the skin getting flushed, maybe a feeling of restlessness or agitation. For men, when men have an erection for a period of time, most men are just fine. They will go through phases even when they're constantly interested of having an erection. After a while, that erection goes away, even if they're still interested. It's a way for the, that the body manages the blood flow and makes sure that all of the hydraulics are still working. Some men experience a process when that erection has lasted for a long time, different for different people. They may experience what's called vasoconjection or epididymal hypertension are all just fancy medical terms for saying it's kind of like a headache in your genital area. And that can typically, it goes away right away after the man's erection goes away and or if he has an orgasm. And, you know, this is an old story. Some men will say that doesn't exist because it doesn't exist for them. Other men will say it does exist for them. A lot of uh, partners of men and women have been told that doesn't exist because we're trying to give the message, you don't have to manage that experience for him, which is absolutely true. And that just comes back to if you are a man who experiences that kind of pain, it's up to yours to manage. Is there a point if you're engaging in an extended arousal process where you want to excuse yourself to a restroom to masturbate, to relieve that congestion? Is there a point in that extended arousal process where you want to say, hey, I know that if I go much further, I might experience some pain. I'm going to separate. I'm going to end this date. This has been lovely. Thank you very much. But again, it's yours to manage, not your partner's. What leads to people to go for some to experience it, for some not? Because like when I was like in graduate school and I learned that it's, it's not real and then I know we both perhaps are an ASAC lister, which right. is our sex therapist. We read right. back and forth about people's experiences. Right. She's very interesting. So, you know, I don't know. I'm, I'm not a medical professional at that in that way. I kind of look at it as the kind of nuance and difference and diversity of human beings. Some people get headaches often. Some don't. Some get them extremely rarely or never. It's just the ways that we're built differently. And so we have different ways that we need to manage our experience and our health. Absolutely. And if it's in a headache, right, similar to a headache, so it's not a big deal. It's not a big deal. This is not an illness. It doesn't require medical attention. You could always go see a urologist if you're particularly concerned about, but it goes away. Taking, you know, whatever over-the-counter analgesic works for you and manage the emotional aspects of that experience yourself. And what a thoughtful way of 
kind of like putting it that like it's a person's responsibility, right? You can kind of carry on and maybe you'll kind of like take some medication later on or masturbate or kind of like choose to not engage, like all very valid options. Right. Right. And that's one of the things that I think is I'm really trying to do with this consent conversation when I'm speaking publicly. I really want to reframe it instead of teaching or telling men you need to get consent to reframe it that men consent is for you. And if you're headed into a process where you have a partner who's extending the arousal process in a way that's frustrating emotionally or physiologically for you, say no. You can opt out of that. You can regulate that experience. You can say, this is difficult for me emotionally. No, no blame for you. You get to say your no too, but I'm going to opt out of extending that process. It's for you, not just for your partners. Absolutely. So you talk a lot in the book about sexual self-regulation. Can you kind of give us some insight on how people can practice it? Sure. So at a very broad level, this is the ability to regulate desire and also the ability to regulate the other emotions that will come when desire is getting close to whatever anticipated goal you had, or if desire is getting frustrated. Other emotions start coming up, literally frustration, sadness, disappointment, or if we're getting close to what we hoped for or what we expected here, what we thought would be pleasurable. We may start getting narrowed attention. We may start getting really excited. We may start losing consciousness or you know, constant awareness of what's happening for our partner. All of those aspects of our experience are ours to manage. And I kind of like to break it down into a kind of a five-part process. So one of those is knowing about your desire, the specific things you are looking for as well as how your desire works. When do you get frustrated? When do you get narrowed attention? When do you start getting really eager? That's that element of kind of mapping the rapids ahead of time so you know when to hold on to your boat and your safety gear a little bit more tightly. Eliminating shame about desire, because when we have shame, that can create all sorts of hidden behaviors, out-of-control sexual behavior, and things like that that make it harder for us to name what we are looking for with our partners. Establishing an aspirational framework for our healthy sexual life. So we need friends, we need community, we need work-life balance, we need to manage our mental health, whatever that experience is. Whether we have no medical issues at all or chronic illness, we need to manage our wellness to the best of our ability in our body. We need to have meaning and purpose, and we need to manage our sexual health, including what erotic materials we engage in, what our masturbation practice is on our own. And the fourth one, we need to learn how to manage the other emotions that I mentioned, and we need communication tools for bringing all of that internal stuff to a partner, communicating it, and also being able to receive from them the same kinds of information about their erotic landscape. Absolutely. And I think it's about kind of knowing that desires are good and it could be a healthy part of being alive, right? Like if you are alive, you possibly experience desire with certain different degree. I know there are some people that identify as asexual and they might not experience that. But majority of people, they experience when you are healthy, some kind of desire. I feel like you wanted to add something. Two things. Yeah, I mean, for an asexual person, even knowing this is the nature of my desire, 
I have none. And illuminating shame about that is great. I, I would like to just acknowledge, I mean, yes, desire is beautiful. It's one of the reasons that I love working with sexuality as a therapist. And some people do experience desires that they have conflicts about, that they don't feel are whole or wholesome for them. And still acknowledging you didn't pick that desire. That is a part of how your mind is working, how your attention is working that you may not want and figuring out, you know, how are you going to manage that even if you don't want it? How can you accept that it's there even if you didn't ask for it? So there's a whole range of experience from things that people have real erotic conflicts about all the way to the sublime. I just want to make sure that I always like to include as much diversity in that language as possible. I like that. And I think it's it's important to keep in mind that, as you said, people's desire erotism could look differently. But I, I'm kind of curious about the, for example, people that they have desires that could be even illegal or like yes. there are some issues with it. The desire on its own is not an issue, my understanding, right? It's more about if you're acting on it or not. Right. Well, part of what I'm trying to acknowledge is that people can have a very complicated relationship with a desire that whether it's an illegal desire or something else that causes them to have a conflict with it, I like to acknowledge that you may feel complex about that. It may enliven you while you feel it, and you may feel sad, confused, or uncertain about why this exists. And getting curious about it and learning about it and acknowledging, I don't know how I feel about this. At the more extreme levels, getting help from a sexuality professional to understand it, to talk about it more so that there is a trusted confidant who also will not be shaming you, who can listen to what the desire is and can make the distinction between a desire and what you do with your body is a very important piece of integrating those kinds of desires and learning how to live with them in integrity. Absolutely. And I think it's helpful when people are kind of like, they're scared of their desires to talk to a therapist or sex, specifically sex therapist, because it helps them to get a majority of time. My experience is that uh, people are feeling ashamed of things that are very common. Like yes. I think in our culture, yes. unless you have a kind of like a attraction to this opposite gender, like it's very narrow type of sexual behavior, everything else feels like out of control or perverted and people are just so scared of their fantasies and desires when they're normal. This is one of the reasons that it can be so valuable when you have the right kinds of people around you to progressively become more vulnerable with your closest friends, with a close family member that can be a sexual confidant. We are so inclined to stay siloed. And when we stay siloed, it's so easy to believe that our desires are so far outside of the norm and beginning to remove some of that sexual shame, some of that prohibition or taboo around talking about and normalizing sexuality as a part of the human experience is really vital for us to be able to claim the pleasure, the vitality, the engagement, the aliveness that can come from our sexuality. Absolutely. So I know one of the concepts that you talk about in your book, that this misunderstanding that people have about how int- intimacy and love and relationship come e- effortlessly. People kind of think about if 
if we are compatible, then like uh, for the rest of our life, we will have great sex. Right. And that's what leads to disappointment for so many people at times. So tell us more about that. Can you elaborate on it? Sure. I think somewhere in there, there's a confluence, right? As the romantic myth, if we love each other, we're always going to be loving all the time. And the sexual myth, if we are attracted to each other and we love each other, then the sex will always be easy and we'll have, you know, mutual simultaneous orgasms and fireworks forever. And, you know, if we just imagine a loving, intimate, long-term couple, they are both kind to each other. You know, John and Marcus, you know, John makes Marcus tea in the morning. Marcus cuts John's toast the way he really likes it. And they find each other deeply attractive. But necessarily in a long-term relationship, life gets in the way. Work, family visits, travel, other stressors, illness, maybe children, maybe just taking care of the dogs or the plants or moves or things like that. These distractions enter into our lives. They take our attention away from our connection with each other. We lean on each other through the stressful times. Now there's this association of you with that phase of financial stress, with that low point in my life or our low point as a couple as well as just the inherent piece of, you know, human cognitive psychology is that we lose a little bit of attention for things that are stable, for things that are always around. We pay attention more to novelty. And a long-term partner begins to fade and we begin just naturally with no pathology taking each other for granted a little bit. This is why it's so important to have as individuals in a couple and as the couple consciously, methods of reconnecting when we lose connection, methods of maintaining connection through difficult times, you know, date night, times for intimacy without pressure for sex, times of intention where we check in with each other, like an anniversary or holidays or the new year. Hey, how are we doing? Are you still feeling close? I'm feeling close, but I just want to check. Are you? We've been through a lot this year. What, what's happening for you right now? Those check-ins allow you to calibrate and make sure you're on the same page and to learn early that there is a disconnection in one member or another. I always think about the data about heterosexual couples that the woman's level of dissatisfaction in a relationship predicts the end of a relationship because men seem to not be aware of the distress of their partners. And so that kind of conscious calibration is so important. I think you brought up so many great points. One thing is that people are, as you said, mis kind of a misunderstanding about what it takes to have hot, sexy, erotically charged long-term yeah. relationships, right? Because the yeah. idea that they get from even like movies around kind of like books that, you know, it's like you just need to find a person and it's just all going to be easy. Right. And there's an element of practice to it, right? Trying a new position will necessarily feel awkward. Trying out a new toy from the adult gift shop or boutique, trying out a new kink in your relationship has the potential to create spice. But there's in almost inherently a little bit of a learning curve of like, this is awkward. I don't know how it feels. Ow, you, you know, you poked me a little bit there. 
there's a re-navigation, re-practicing that we need to go through, navigating that and setting low expectations as we introduce something new so that we can be, then begin to cultivate, okay, I remember this from last time. Oh, actually, I think I'm able to lose a little bit of the self-consciousness. Now I'm able to get into my body. I'm able to feel what that sensation is like. Ooh, now I can actually vocalize. Now I can connect to you instead of this new toy that we've brought in. We're thinking about this, you know, where my knees are in this position. Now I can be present. Now I can feel pleasure. Ooh, now I can explore even more. And the, the joy of that novelty emerges after a period of practice and awkwardness, just like it did when we first learned how to have sex with somebody. And I think awkwardness and kind of like vulnerability at times, yeah. that makes it, that's what's make it special and fun and connecting at times. I think I tell people like levity is just can make their bedroom so much more fun because it's just most people sex for them is about having connection and fun. And I think right. like no matter what you're doing, as long as you are having a good time and you're connecting with your partner, it feels like a win. Yeah. Can you laugh when the sex toy falls out? Can you, you know, just break down in peals of laughter when somebody toots in an, oppor- in an inopportune moment? Like, you know, there's hilarity in this human existence maybe especially in the bedroom. And so can we let that in and celebrate it and make it a part of the connection? Well, one thing that you were talking about is kind of like emotional chicken, right? Where we are, how are we doing? Which reminded me of something else that you talk in the book that I see a lot in my cisgender male clients is that not being familiar and or not knowing your emotions, right? In Mm -hmm. order to communicate what you're Mm -hmm. feeling, you have to know your landscape of emotions. And even in couples therapy, at times, one of the partners, it feels like bring the other partner, force them to come in therapy and they're just not engaged. How can people support their partner through those journeys? So I think one of the first things is to remember that this, let's just take the example as you raised of like a cisgender man. Let's remember first, this isn't his fault. He didn't choose to not be taught to stay in tuned with his, attuned with his body. He didn't choose to not be given language for his emotions. He didn't choose to experience chronically being teased or hurt or maybe even violently assaulted by other children or other teenagers as he was developing, that if he's vulnerable, he's going to experience that kind of attack. Now he may not be in that place. Now it really might be safe for him to become vulnerable. But this might be the first time in his life where that's true for him. And remembering and being patient with that wound that he's experienced that cut him off from his birthright connection to his emotions is a really compassionate first step. And then the next thing might be to just get curious and silent. Silence, I think, really helps a lot of men sit in the question, what are you feeling right now? And then to get quiet, get attuned with the body, identify a sensation, parse through what does the sensation mean? What emotion is that? Put words to it. Think out multiple times, how would it feel to say that? And then to develop the capacity to actually say it. 
I see it in my practice over and over again that a partner's urgency to receive the emotional communication leads to them jumping into that silence prematurely and not giving him the opportunity to develop that intuitive internal process. Beautiful, beautiful. Well, I think it's just a matter, as you said, that it's it's about kind of like fine tuning in this dance of communication, as you mentioned, and kind of being patient and have compassion for each other's kind of strength and weaknesses. One of the things that you talk about in the book that's very interesting is like to help people to kind of navigate their sexual health, sexual experiences when their partner isn't interested. Right. So for a number of reasons, maybe when that that chapter of life or that night, how can people manage that? So I think one of the first things that I hear, especially when a partner is initiated often and they're in the high desire position and they've gotten that experience of no in their own mind, in their own perception often, that they experience that as a rejection. And I think one of the first things is to really Examine that interpretation of the no. Is your partner saying, I don't ever want to have sex with you again? Most likely they aren't. And maybe it's helpful to get really clear. We haven't had sex in a year. Are you saying you don't ever want to have sex again? That might be a really difficult thing to get vulnerable and ask. But if the answer is, yeah, I don't want that better for you to know and then grapple with the truth rather than fear that it's true and just get caught up in your own mind when it isn't true. The next thing is I like to remind people, the high desire partner, hey, before you initiated, you thought your partner was sexy enough to engage and initiate. You thought you were sexy enough to engage. Just because you got a no doesn't mean that either of your states around that attractiveness changed. So curiosity here is so helpful learning, you know, what is it about, and and I want to separate, don't start hounding your partner with questions. Sometime when you're on a drive, sometime when you're out on, you know, a coffee date and you're not about to have sex, it's off the table. Start to get curious. Hey, I've noticed that sometimes when I initiate, it seems like a lot to me, you say no. And I'm just curious, what's going on there? Am I not initiating in the right way? Is there something that's going on for you that's making it hard for you to get in touch with your desire? Are there some external factors that are limiting your desire that I don't know about? You know, going back to the dual control model, right? Maybe this person is just experiencing stress and that puts pressure on their gas pedal and so they can't get their engine going. The curiosity, the conversation that's collaborative outside of a pressuring context when sex is not on the table, at least opens it up. And your partner may not be able to engage with that. That's not something you can control. You, all you can control is opening up. Hey, I've, I've asked, I've gotten curious, I've regulated my own desire, I'm not pressuring, I'm calm, I'm curious, I'm being the partner I want to be. That's all you can do. Well, I think it's, as you said, it, it is a skill to kind of like bring it up. And sometimes people have shamed the partners about their lack of responsiveness and they can kind of like come up with that sometimes when you have the shame attacking the other person, kind of like minimizing your experience. But I think the way that you brought it up is so relational and kind of thoughtful, right? Like we're not talking about it when there's a possibility for sex. So your partner doesn't feel 
pressured and it's just a place of understanding. Yeah. Yeah. It's so important to create that collaborative connection because otherwise it can so easily, the conversation can so easily devolve into I want sex. You don't want sex. Now we both just repeat those statements over and over again, butting our heads. Now we're in opposition to each other. Now that fissure and tension starts spilling over into the dishes and who cleans and who doesn't and whatever, you know, finances. And now we're not together in this life together. We're not collaborating to try to meet both of our needs. One of us, I'm trying to get my needs met. You're trying to get your needs met. And it becomes a win-lose proposition. Also, another scenario that we talked about was that maybe the partner is a maybe, right? Yes. Like they're not ready yet or they don't know if they will be ready, but they, yes. they want to kind of like explore things. What would be the guidance around those situations? Yeah, so I think there's one really important cognitive element to pay attention to here, which is if you're the high desire partner here, you're ready to go and your partner's saying, oh, I'm still at a little bit of a yellow light. I need to simmer. I need to build a little bit more. What expectations do you have about how long it should take for your partner to be ready? And, you know, this comes directly from Emily Nagoski. She's got three beautiful questions about this. You know, one of those is, you know, do I have an accurate understanding of how much effort and how long and what the right effort is in order to, for my partner's arousal to emerge. And so often we can compare this idea from cultural messages, movies, you know, porn or erotica, and we compare that to our partner's reality. And none of that matters because the real lived experience that's here is the one that our partner has. So recognizing when we have an expectation, learning how to compare that expectation to our partner's real lived experience and set that expectation aside is so important. And then from there, we're right back to all of the other things that I was talking about around emotional regulation and your own desire management. Hey, you know, you could be in a position, great, it takes you four days to simmer. Well, you know, I it takes me a half a day to simmer. So I'm going to engage with you, help you simmer a little bit, and then I'm going to go create my own pleasure for three days, you know, each day. You're welcome to join me, but there's no pressure. And I'm going to take care of that on my own when I get to the point where my desire is now ready to move towards fulfillment. And great, fourth day, you're ready. That's wonderful. But you still take four hours and I take a half an hour. How can we engage a couple of times? How can I be flirtatious about, ooh, are you, looks like you're simmering over there and still, you know, separate enough or manage my own desire enough so that I'm not creating that experience of emotional frustration so that I'm ready to bring my desire level and your desire level into sync collaboratively when we can. Well, so what I'm hearing, it's, it's about erotic cooperation, right? Like we're, yeah, we're not... We're yeah. not pushing our partner. We're not kind of like pressuring. We're there to support, but we are responsible. Every person is responsible for their yeah. own pleasure. Everybody is responsible for their own pleasure and we're managing it openly. We're openly conversing. We're not shaming the other person for, you know, being fast out of the gate or slow out of the gate. We're just accepting that is the nature of each other's process. 
now? How do we work together? How do we build bridges uh, between those desires? To use a term from Barry McCarthy. Beautiful. Well, I personally, as I shared with you, I love the book. I think every chapter could be a on its own one separate book. So for our listeners that they want to hear more about your thoughts about these topics and your book, what are some of the places they can find it? You can find me on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok at Dr. Eric Fitz. You can find my website, DrEricFitz.com. There's a link there to my book and it's available now. Beautiful, beautiful. Well, I'm so excited for our listeners to check out the book. Hopefully they'll let us know about their feedback. And thank you so much for coming on the show. This was such a helpful conversation. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a delightful conversation. As we wrap up another episode, let's take a moment to reflect. Male sexuality often perceived through a narrow lens is rich in complexity, nuance, and depth. Today, we're unpacked its layers, challenging long-held beliefs, and making space for understanding and empathy. From the essence of desire to details of intimacy, it's evident that there is so much more to learn, discuss, and appreciate about the male sexual experiences. And for those of you inspired by discussions and eager to delve deeper into the world of sexuality, I have just a place for you. The Sexual Health Alliance is your gateway to becoming a certified professional in the realm of sexuality. They offer study abroad programs. That's how I learned about them. I went to Berlin to one of the study abroad programs and it was life-changing. Not only you will have the opportunity to learn from the best instructors, but they curate the best tours and places to go if you want to deepen your understanding of sexual health. Whether you're passionate about therapy, education, or coaching, Shaw offers a comprehensive program tailored just for you. Dive into immersed learning experience, mentoring by leading expert in the field. Your journey toward expertise start at sexualhealthalliance.com. Check out the link in our show notes and take the next step in your professional journey. A huge thank you to our sponsor, Shaw, and to all of our listeners. Thank you for your curiosity and your commitment to understanding the complexity of world of sexuality. Until next time, keep the conversation going and stay curious. Thanks for listening to Sexology Podcast. For more great content, visit www.sexologypodcast.com. Please be advised that information presented on this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health provider.